Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast. Excited that you're here and thank you. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to give you guys a quick couple words about our lovely sponsors who make this show possible. First, we have Metis Network. Right now, every layer two optimistic rollup uses a single sequencer to run their network. This creates a large security and decentralization risk. If that one sequencer goes down due to a malicious actor, seizure by outside authorities, or anything else, the results could be catastrophic. Soon, Metis will launch the first ever sequencer pool. By spreading sequencer duties across multiple parties, Metis will decentralize the most important function of a blockchain network, combine that with their network of block producers and validators, and Metis will become one of the first truly decentralized layer twos using a decentralized sequencer. These sequencers will be required to stake and lock a minimum of 20,000 Metis tokens, which effectively ensures that they will act with the network's best interest in mind. I'm pretty excited about this personally because during DevConnect, we listened to a lot of talks about decentralizing sequencers, and even Vitalik gave a talk about the roadmap to decentralized sequencers. The more that we can push this innovation forward, the more that we can push this ethos of decentralization forward, it makes the entire ecosystem better. So thank you, Metis, for supporting the rollup, and we look forward to seeing this come to fruition. Well, guys, welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast today, post-ETF. Oof. It was like uh, it was like a whirlwind as you started or on the bull market. Or maybe that's just me waking up from the uh, midday nap. Which one is it, Rob? Definitely, definitely a little bit of both. There was a whirlwind, man. It feels like all of a sudden, like, I mean, we're so back. But if you've been here, you would have known that we were back like three months ago when we really got back and there was, it was bonk and whiff and Solana meme coin season. So welcome to all the new, the new coiners, we can call them. And if you've been paying attention to say, you've been back for, for at least six weeks, baby. Cause uh, we're at up only season. Jay, what are you doing over there? Up only. How are you? Sir? Only guys. Doing well, guys. It's been a crazy past couple of months, as I'm sure you guys can imagine. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Um, obviously, you have a pretty cool background uh, with regards to kind of uh, your entrance into crypto um, and then kind of getting into say. So yeah, I would love for our, our audience to kind of pick up the pieces as to how you put this all together. Yeah, yeah, of course. So... Um, I guess in terms of my background, I grew up in the Bay Area, so close to San Francisco, um, studied computer science in college, and I personally ended up getting into crypto back in 2017. I guess it's kind of wild to say, like, it's not even the last bull, car bull market anymore now, so two bull markets ago. Um, and back then, my roommate, um, he was going through Binance Labs, so both of us ended up tinkering together on a couple of different projects. Um, and that's when I kind of learned about smart contract development. Um, at kind of the same time, a lot of my friends from college, they were starting to do a lot more trading in crypto. Um, I mean, in hindsight, it's kind of crazy how things work back then. But uh, if you were joining us in news, Brad, software engineer at Facebook, um, back then you would be getting like a 100K signing bonus. So some of my friends, they literally took those signing bonuses and they just aped it into ETH back when ETH was like $40. Um, and then afterwards, they, as you can imagine, like when you're 21, you make a shitload of money. They just started doing a lot of um, degen trading back in the day. Um, they ended up breaking even from that. Like, I think they made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, learned a lot of life lessons. Um, but I mean, just kind of seeing both sides of that, it was just kind of super fun um, to be doing stuff in crypto. Um, and afterwards, I ended up joining Robinhood, like the Robinhood. Um, the one that was associated with the GameStop saga. And I initially interviewed for them back in 2017. So at that time, there were basically like two houses across the street from each other. Like you imagine like Robinhood as being like this established company, but back then they literally took bedrooms in the houses. They had like standing desks over there and that's where the engineers were working from. So it was very much a startup at that time. Um, so yeah, I ended up joining Robinhood when it was fairly early. Um, I saw the company TEDx. And I was an engineering lead when the entire game Stop Saga happened. And I mean, for anyone that might not be super familiar with it, 
this happened three years ago. So it was around the end of January. I think it was January 28th of 2021 when everything kind of went down. So actually around this time right now, it's January 11th when we're recording. Around this time, three years ago, there was this massive kind of mania happening with all these meme stocks. There were stocks like GameStop, um, AMC. There were like a dozen of these stocks. And there was just a bunch of like retail buying demand for these stocks. And there wasn't really a high, like any kind of like thesis behind it. It was just kind of people aping into it because other people were aping into it. Um, and it came, a lot of activity came from subreddits like Wall Street Bets. I don't know if you guys were like on Wall Street Bets back then. Um, yeah, I was actually in early entrance to Wall Street Bets back in 2018. And back then I thought it was kind of crazy. And then it just became insanely crazy by 2021. Um, so yeah, like people from Wall Street Bets were like buying all these stocks and it just became insane. Like just how, um, how much things were going up, like how much the price action that was happening. Um, hedge funds and like sophisticated traders saw this. They're like, hey, wait a minute. There's like no fundamental value over here. This is kind of nonsensical. So we're going to short it. Um, but I don't think they accounted for how irrational the market could be. So what ended up happening is there's this concept of a short squeeze. So shorting the stock is what I just referenced. That's when you bet against the stock. To be able to short a stock, you need to borrow a stock, sell it, and then buy it back when you want to close the position. Um, these sophisticated firms that were shorting the stock, they ended up needing to close their position because they were they were already down so much money when like GameStop went up like whatever like five hundred percent in the scope of like a week. Um, so because of that, they needed to actually buy the stock, which led to even more buy pressure. So it led to this insane kind of price action where everything was just going straight up to the moon. Um, and amidst kind of all of this chaos, there was one day where just out of the blue, Robin had decided to turn off buys, and I mean the entire world world was just like pretty frustrated, like, what the hell just happened? Um, and Robinhood, I, I don't think they were doing anything malicious in hindsight. Like, now it's been three years, there's been, like, a congressional hearing about it as well. I don't think they were doing anything, like, fraudulent. Um, but I do think that they were incredibly opaque with how they handled everything. Like, no one had any clue what the hell was happening internally. Um, even me as an employee, like, I had no clue what was happening, and I found out about things at the same time as when they announced it to the rest of the world. So it was just incredibly frustrating. Um, so my friends were asking me questions because they had positions are like, yo, I'm losing money on this. What the hell is happening? Um, I had nothing to be telling them. Uh, my coworkers, like I, I was a lead, right? So people were asking me questions around like what's happening. I had to somehow keep up the morale without really having any idea of what's actually happening. Um, and it, it just makes you feel powerless to go through an experience like that. And I mean, after going through the GameStop saga, I became much more of the decentralization maxi because anything um, that is done in a decentralized way is inherently trustless and transparent and would have avoided all of the issues that we saw with Robinhood. So that's why back in 2021, uh, my co-founder and I, we started trying to build a DEX. Essentially, our idea was let's try to build something like Robinhood, except build it in a decentralized way. Um, this then led to us looking into all the infrastructure we could use to build an exchange. So we looked into like every layer one, every layer two, um, all the infrastructure that existed at that time back in 2021. Um, and we came to the conclusion that trying to build, at that time, we wanted to build an order book based exchange to try to build any kind of like high throughput exchange um, on chain. This didn't really work. Um, and that's when we decided to start building the base layer instead. So instead of building an app, we decided, okay, let's just build a general purpose layer one. And that is what Say is. Say is the fastest chain in existence right now. Um, we started building it around March of 22 is when we transitioned from like building the DEX to building the core layer one. Um, it went live on mainnet in August of 2023. So it's been live for, I guess, around five months as of the time of this recording. Um, and things have been going quite well in many regards. Uh, it's seeing 390 millisecond sustained time to finality. So it's faster than every other chain out there right now. Um, it's like 10x faster than Solana. Because in our case, like 390 milliseconds is how long it takes for a block to be created and finalized. In the case of chains like Solana, it might be created in like 400 to 600 milliseconds, but the block isn't finalized for like three to five seconds. So it ends up being just significantly better from the user experience from that standpoint. Um, the biggest issue that has become clear in the past five months is that if you don't support the EVM, it's really difficult to get a ecosystem built. Um, because if you look at the developer landscape right now in crypto, Essentially, everyone 
that is crypto native is an EVM developer. There's some people that are like Solana developers. I would say that's a very small minority right now. Um, and outside of Solana developers, there's really not any other execution environments that have gotten much traction. Like Move is Fausti. I wouldn't say like zero traction, but like pretty close to zero traction. Um, Cosm, Wasm, Fuel, like a lot of these other ones aren't doing too great either. Um, so the, the thing that's clear is that if you want to actually support crypto native developers, you need the EVM right now. Like it's reached that terminal velocity. There's no way around supporting the EVM. So that's why after kind of getting that developer feedback um, back in November, uh, so I think the, the exact date was like November 29th of 2023. So like, as you said, around six weeks ago, um, we put out the Save V2 proposal. So the Save V2 is a proposal to build the first paralyzed EVM. Um, and this essentially lets you get the best of both Ethereum and Solana. Since you're able to get the Ethereum virtual machine and all of the mindshare, tooling, developer support um, that is there with the EVM. And you're able to get the really high performance blockchain, high performance execution environment that you see with Slana. And yeah, I mean, as you said, it's been just insane after we put that out. I think it really stuck some kind of, um, it really resonated with the crypto ethos. And it just led to a massive amount of activity that started to happen. Um, and basically every single side of say, like a lot of discussions, it led to a lot of activity starting to happen on chain as well. Um, but yeah, it's just been super exciting to see all of that play out. So that's a brief intro about myself and say, yeah, fantastic. And I'd like to dive into more of the parallels, parallel, parallelization of the EVM, kind of that narrative as well. Talk more about the narratives in the bull market, um, as well as just kind of say ecosystem and things. Um, but kind of more broadly, what would you say were some of the key factors uh, from the community, from the builders, um, devs, marketing, just broadly that have led to the success of um, Say's growth from launch? Um, you know, kind of what what were the couple you think key factors that other builders or, or community members and people can kind of learn from uh, that you guys did well, um, you know, that have led to the uh, quick success thus far? Yeah, so for Save one I think there's a few different things that can be kind of studied. Um, the first is the technology itself. I think at the end of the day, you need to have really good technology to be able to get any kind of adoption. Um, in Say's case, it's been the fastest chain in existence. And it's also been stable in the sense that if, there's been like no liveness issues so far. There haven't There hasn't been any like unexpected downtime or anything. Um, so I think that really leads to people viewing a chain as like a quality product if there's no like unexpected downtime. Um, so I think that's been one of the strongest things that has been, uh, I think, influential in the kind of traction that Say has had so far. Um, beyond that, I would say the second biggest thing is the community. Um, in Say's case, I think even before the launch, there was a ton of excitement around the chain. Um, just because the kind of things that we were focused on building led to a lot of people that are like very excited about the possibilities of like what this ecosystem could be a few years from now. Um, and after this AB2 proposal, I think that led to an even bigger kind of community. Um, it's actually wild. Like after the V2 proposal came out, um, there were some people in the community that started tweeting about how instead of being sailors, like that's what we had originally come up with for community members in the Say ecosystem, it should be Saiyans from like Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. Um, and I mean, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's like fucking sick. And I think a lot of community members thought that as well. Um, and then like the Saiyan Network Twitter had like a, a poll around like which name should be used and the Saiyan name ended up winning. So now the community is uh, the Saiyans. And yeah, I mean, it's just kind of wild. Like once there starts to be a lot of chatter, like so many people start getting involved in that ecosystem. And now there's just like, the Saiyans are like such strong advocates for everything that is happening in the community and in the ecosystem. Um, but I think that's definitely been one of the reasons Say is seeing all of like the inscription, NFT, token trading activity um, that's been happening so far. Um, yeah, I think those would be the two biggest things, like the tech and the community that it's gotten Say to where it is right now. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a founder of, a, of, a, of an L1 as well. And I kept referring to Say. I was like, dude, look at these memes. 
I was like, look at this, look at that. And so I think that that's been something that you guys have, uh, have, have nailed, um, amongst of course the tech, which we'll, we're getting close to wanting to dive into. But furthermore on this subject, um, which probably will take us into the tech, uh, what makes say not just another L1, like why, why do, why does the crypto ecosystem need say blockchain? Yeah, that's a great question. So for Save you 2 and I'll just start talking about Save you 2 for the rest of this discussion. Um, the core issue that exists right now, if you look at, so, I mean, first of all, I, I think it's clear from what I said before that the EVM is here to stay. Like the Ethereum virtual machine is the default that any developer is going to be using if they come into crypto right now. There's no reason strategically for them to use anything else because that is where all the users are. Like regardless of which ecosystem you deploy to, you're going to be using the EVM unless for some reason it strategically makes sense to deploy to Solana right now. EVM is here to stay. So what are the limitations of the EVM right now? Well, if you look at the current kind of applications that are built on the EVM, um, and this is true for Ethereum L1, this is true for rollups that are built on top as well, none of them are really able to get more than 30 TPS of performance. So if by TPS, that's a term that means transactions per second. And this is essentially how much how many users, user submitted transactions are able to get processed um, per second. So 30 TPS is very low. Um, it means that you really can't have too much activity happening. And that's why you started seeing a lot of the applications that have get, uh, gotten built on Ethereum so far. They end up needing to be ones that cannot, uh, that need to work in this like less than 30 TPS kind of environment. Um, so one example of this would be an automated market maker. Uh, so an AMM like Uniswap. Um, the reason that that does not exist, like in traditional financial markets, one of the biggest reasons is because uh, you are able to have much more liquid and capital efficient markets if you make use of an order book. But because you can't really support an order book on chain, well, guess what? You're stuck using an AMM. So I think there's a lot of anti-patterns that have started to be used on chain um, with Ethereum, just because you can't really have these high throughput applications. Um, and that is the most fundamental thing that is missing from the Ethereum ecosystem right now. And how does this affect users, right? Well, if you can't have more than 30 transactions being included per second, um, then it leads to a lot of competition to get your transaction included. And this leads to high gas fees, because if you have like 10,000 people that are all trying to submit transactions and you can only get like 30 TPS, then it, you need to pay a lot of money to be one of those 30 transactions that's included. Um, so the end user experience over here is high gas fees. Um, the developer experience here is you just fundamentally cannot build some types of applications. So the design space is like honestly quite minuscule compared to like everything that you could be designing. Um, and because of that, we think it's no brainer to try to bring, uh, essentially scale the EVM by offering greater throughput. And that's the clearest thing that's missing right now. And I think that's the biggest reason why a lot of developers are excited about Save 2 as well. Um, ever since we got the internal devnet ready, there's been a ton of teams uh, reaching out to us to start getting onboarded to that um, because it gives them an entirely new design space with the EVM. Very cool. Um, and picking up the devil's advocate to, uh, I guess, your entire life's thesis here with Say V2. The EVM's broken. We just did a podcast with Movement Labs founder Rushi and, of course, the activity on these alternative VMs, let's just put this aside as if as if uh, you know they were picking up tons of traction. Um, the EVM's dead. Uh, there's too many security issues. No big institutional players are are are, are going to put their funds on a chain on a code base that has um, you know that that doesn't have formal verification that that doesn't have um, you know local fee markets that 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 doesn't have um, uh, updatable audits within smart contracts um, that has potential for re-entry attacks. All these different things, right, that make the EVM not performant and not secure. Like, how how is the EVM going to, how is the EVM going to, to compete with better tech? Uh, and and then based on that, like, why, how is your version of the EVM, and then we, we can pull up the uh, kind of document how is your version of EVM even better? Yeah. So the Ethereum virtual machine is 
fundamentally what has almost all the activity in crypto right now. So it's less of a question of how the EVM is going to be competing with these other execution environments. And the bigger question is whether these other execution environments will be replacing the EVM or getting greater traction against the EVM anytime in the next 12 to 18 months. I think the most intellectually honest answer over here is no, these other execution environments will not be replacing the EVM. I think all the things you mentioned around like formal verification, avoiding reentrancy attacks, those are great. At the end of the day, developers don't give a shit at all about that. Like the only thing developers care about is user acquisition, building a good product and making money. And if the EVM lets them do all three of these things, they will go to the EVM. And they don't care about all these other fancy things that you mentioned, if the EVM is where all the mindshare is and where all the users and all the tooling is. Um, so, I mean, I, I agree with the core point that you made that like the EVM has flaws, like reentrancy attacks are definitely a pretty significant thing to be mindful of when you're writing your contracts. Um, but given that it's a quasi Turing complete virtual machine, you can build anything that you really want to with the EVM. So in terms of the functionality that you can offer, everything can be built with the EVM. Um, so I really don't think that it's going to be like, oh, oh like both uh, like move versus EVM are going to be considered the same way. It's going to be more like, can the move uh, virtual machine actually replace the EVM? And I think the pretty straightforward answer over there is no. Um, with regards to how we're approaching um, paralyzing the EVM, it might be helpful to share our blog post. So this is a blog post that we put out on November 29th. And this kind of goes over our entire approach with Save V2. I'll just touch on, I think, one of the initial things over here. So there are three separate things that we're doing with Save V2. Uh, the first is we're adding in the Ethereum virtual machine. And currently with Save V1, we support Cosmos and Spark contracts. Um, with Save V2, there'll be the EVM getting added in and the EVM will be interoperable with existing Cosmos and Smart contracts. So it'll be a purely additive change. Nothing that exists right now will be removed. Um, the second thing is we'll be moving towards optimistic parallelization. So this is a style of parallelization that is very developer friendly. So developers don't need to define any dependencies. They can just take an Ethereum L1 smart contract, deploy it on say, and it will just work. Um, and the third thing that we're doing is we're doing a ton of work around improving state access, state commit, and state storage. So I see you'd unmuted yourself, Robbie. I'll uh, stop talking for a second. Yeah, thanks. Quick question before we we kind of dive deeper. Like the number two thing on here is parallelization. Uh, Andy's an EVM parallelization maxi today. This is the first parallelized EVM. Like, could you could you break down this concept of of parallelized? Like, what mm -hmm. what is it? What does it mean? Why is it important? Yeah. So if you look at the Ethereum virtual machine right now, so essentially every single EVM-based chain out there, whether it's Ethereum L1, a rollup, an alt L1, um, they all use a single-threaded Ethereum virtual machine. What that means is if you have 100 transactions, every single one of them will get processed one after the other. Um, this is really simple to do. Like from a software engineering standpoint, it's really simple to have like these transactions get scheduled one after the other. Um, but it's not very performant because if you look at modern hardware, um, modern hardware has multiple cores and it's able to process multiple things simultaneously. So like, it, even if you're listening to this on like a phone, your phone is going to have multiple cores and it's capable of like handling multiple work streams at the same time. So if you think about it, it's kind of silly that like you have this single thread virtual machine, um, when modern hardware is able to offer much better performance than that. So the idea behind parallelization is instead of processing just one transaction after the other, um, you start processing multiple transactions at the same time. Um, at a high level, it's like a very simple kind of concept, like just process multiple things simultaneously. So for example, if like I'm sending you tokens to Robbie, and then Andy, you're sending tokens to my co-founder Jeff, um, these are things that aren't really dependent on each other. So they can be scheduled to run at the same time, and then you can have better performance from that. Uh, fundamentally, there's two things that make this a little bit harder to implement in practice. Um, the first is that you need to figure out what state every transaction is touching. Um, and by state over here, I mean like which accounts are being touched. For example, let's say that hypothetically I have 10 say, and I submit two transactions. One is to send Robbie 10 say, the second is to send Andy 10 say. 
um, whatever the second transaction is in this case, the one to send Tensei Tandy, um, that should fail because I only have Tensei and I've already sent that to Rocky, right? So you need to make sure that in the cases where there is the same state being touched, um, you account for the ordering of transactions to make sure that there's no nothing kind of funky going on over there. Like the first transaction gets processed first and then the second one should fail. Um, so the state access problem makes it somewhat difficult. Um, the second thing is parallelization by itself doesn't completely solve um, scaling the EVM because there's a lot of problems with like the way that state is accessed and the way that state gets committed as well um, that you need to account for before you can really get that breakthrough in performance. So that's what we've been addressing with JV2. Uh, we've made use of optimistic parallelization to be able to figure out what this these conflicts in state are uh, to lead to a much simpler developer experience. Because otherwise, if you look at chains like Solana, for example, um, developers need to define what the dependencies are. So developers in Solana's case, they pass along every single account that is being touched in a transaction. And that adds an additional complexity um, to the developer experience. And then we've also done a ton of work with State V2 to help with improving state access and the other things that I was mentioning. It finally makes sense. That, like, if it has to touch the same state, you do it in series, you can, you, it, you have to prevent the double spend problem. Mm -hmm. But exactly. if it's two separate states, you're able to execute those in parallel. Finally, it makes sense. The, the only thing left is learning how to pronounce it. So we'll figure yeah, that out. And he's kind of build off of Rob's point. Like, let's, can you give us an example? Um, like, I know like a common one is like, oh, if you're minting, it's just an NFT mint on Ethereum right now, it clogs up the entire chain. Which is say, if there's an NFT mint in one app, that's not going to affect my DeFi application swap. Like, is, could you explain to us from the user perspective what the parallelization uh, ends up looking like? I mean, honestly, from the user perspective, you won't even know that parallelization is happening. Um, it's all going to be behind the scenes. So the end impact on the user is that instead of paying $100 in gas fees, you'll be paying like a tenth of a cent in gas fees. And everything else will kind of just magically happen behind the scenes. Um, in terms of like what will actually happen under the hood is that the transactions will get submitted. Like let's say there's one for an NFT mint. There's another just for me to send you token, Sandy. Um, the chain will see that these are non uh, overlapping transactions. So it'll be able to process like the mint transaction separately from the transaction to send you tokens. And you'll be able to leverage uh, the different, uh, the multiple cores on the machine to be able to get better performance um, because they're not overlapping transactions. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premium Finance. Premium is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premium, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options traders. Feel free to check it out at premium.finance, hedge your risks, or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital-efficient returns on Premium Finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plan of Finance. I've recently been onboarded as an advisor for Plan of Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plan of Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless, user-friendly experience. Plan of Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plan of Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Plan of Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. And gotcha. And how do you how do you do that without passing the state 
or the affected accounts of the state with each transaction? Yes, that's a great question. So this is what a high-level diagram for it looks like. Um, in Save in Savy Troops case, we make use of optimistic parallelization. Um, the way that this works is that the chain will try to run all the transactions in parallel first. So over here, there's these three transactions. All three of them will start getting run in parallel. Um, and then the chain will figure out that all the state, so all the accounts, all the slots that are being updated by every single one of these transactions. Um, so in the case of, let's say, transaction one is an NFT mint, transaction two is the same NFT mint, and then transaction three. Um, actually, in this example, let's say transaction one is me sending any tokens, and then transactions two and three are NFT mints. Um, then in that case, transaction one will just be touching my account and Andy's account. And then transactions two and three will be touching whatever that smart contract is that is handling the NFT mint. Um, so after the chain figure out, figures out like what state each transaction is touching, then it's able to say that transactions that are uh, not touching any conflicting state, in this case, transaction one where I'm sending Andy tokens, um, those are good. So those will just be uh, marked as valid and then you can kind of move on. And then in the case where there is any kind of conflict happening, so in this case, transactions two and three, they're touching the same state. Um, then you can take the first transaction and say that is valid because that's the one that would be getting processed first if you're processing sequentially. So transaction two would be valid and then transaction three would need to get rerun. And you know, let's say that instead of just transactions two and three, there were transactions two through 10, all of them were NST mins. Then in that case, you need to rerun all of the NFT mint transactions to be happening one after the other, depending on their ordering within the block. So what are the trade-offs of this approach, right? Um, the biggest trade-off with this is you need to rerun these transactions. So in the worst case, all the transactions in the block might be all touching the same state. So then you try to run everything in parallel first. You'd see they're all touching the same state and then rerun them all sequentially. So that actually leads to a 30% overhead compared to just running it sequentially the first time. So if they're like in the absolute worst case, it'll be 30% worse than sequential processing. Um, if you look at Ethereum L1 though, typically, not typically, you'd never have 100% of transactions being processed, um, all touching the same state. Uh, in practice, it ends up being more closer to like 15% of transactions are touching the same state. So in a case like that, you're able to get just significant performance improvements um, from parallelization. So transaction three has to wait until the next block? No, no, no. So transaction three will still be processed within this block. It'll just okay. be like, as part of the block processing, it'll be tried, you'll try to process it once, it'll fail, and then you'll try to process it again, except it'll be using the dependencies of transaction two. So like whatever updates yeah. transaction two made, it'll take that into account and then run transaction three. So all of this happens under the hood and it's going to lead to a similar uh, user experience, uh, yeah. an identical user experience as sequential processing. Um, and the output will also be the exact same as sequential processing. So if you process all 100 transactions one after the other, and if you use optimistic parallelization, they'll have the exact same end state. So in this instance, user three isn't waiting any longer than user two to get their transaction processed. Exactly. So because all of this is happening within the scope of a block being executed, of the block being processed, all the users will need to wait the exact same time. The block will only be done being processed once every transaction in the block has actually been processed. And then have you guys looked into what kind of MEV is possible between transaction two executing and transaction three executing? Like say transaction two is a big whale and then transaction three is a sandwich bot uh, going after it. But obviously that, would, that transaction would have to come after it. Like how, what's the, what, what are the possibilities? Have, have there been any research done on, on that with this type of penalization? Thankfully, this is actually very simple. Um, there is no additional MEV that comes from this uh, from this parallelization. Um, the reason for that is, I mean, at a high level, if you think about like sequential processing, you're given 100 transactions, you get to some kind of end state. Um, we're getting to that exact same end state with parallel processing, right? Like all 100 transactions will get processed in parallel, but the output of them will be the exact same as the output from sequential processing. So from the execution layer, there's no additional MEV that this introduces. The question is then like, oh, maybe like at the validator level, there's like some kind of changes in validator hardware requirements or network topology that'll result in potentially different access patterns that might lead to greater um, avenues for MEV. 
Um, in Safe's case, that is not going to happen um, because you don't actually need to run more performant hardware to be able to use Save 2 um, It's just taking advantage of the cores that are already on these machines um, to be able to get better performance. So there's not going to be any increase in hardware requirements. And as a result, there's also not going to be any change in network topology. So it's going to lead to an identical type of um, MEV landscape. Gotcha. Cool. Um, all right. A lot of this kind of uh, thought process from you guys, I think, is to solve the state bloat problem. And hear a lot about this state bloat problem of Ethereum. I mean, well, first, just like, what even is state bloat? How, how does it occur? Why is it being labeled and things that I've read as like potentially catastrophic for, for Ethereum um, or just kind of a problem? And then, yeah, how, are you, how does this solve that? That's a great question. So let me just share a tweet that I put out uh, a couple of days ago. Okay. Um, so I guess first things first, uh, what is state and what is state load? State is the active data that needs to persist on the blockchain to be able to process any incoming transactions and to be able to generate a state like a state hash that will then be included in the block header. So that was kind of like an academic way of saying it. Um, more practical ways, like state is going to be all the account balances. So like Robbie has five say, Andy has 10 say. It'll be all those account balances. Um, it'll also be smart contract state. So like this NFT contract has whatever state that'll be part of the active state um, of the blockchain. So the issue with having a high performance chain is that you have more transactions that are coming in, which then leads to more state updates um, that happen, which then leads to just greater state. So if you have a higher performance blockchain, you tend to have more state uh, that needs to be stored. And when you have a lot of state, there ends up being two primary issues um, that come with that. The first is that it's really difficult to store the state. Um, if you want to have like a validator or full node, it might only have like 128 gigabyte um, hard drive. Then if the state becomes bigger than 128 gigabytes, then guess what? You're going to need the entire network to start increasing the size of their hard drive, uh, which makes it more expensive to run a full node, which is then going to lead to greater centralization, um, which is bad. So that, that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem is around state sync. So if you want to start running a new node, like how do you actually do that? Well, you need to import all the data that already exists on the blockchain. So you need to import all the state. In Ethereum's case, it's close to 100 gigabytes. So you need to import 100 gigabytes of state. And if you have a high performance chain, the argument can be made that in the longer term, you'll be actually having even more state than that. Um, so how do you import that efficiently? And then also process, like while you're importing that, there's going to be new transactions that are coming in. So you need to also update the state of the blockchain with those new transactions. So, I mean, sometimes it might take like days to be able to do something like this. Um, which is definitely not ideal. Like it makes it much harder to start running a new node. So those are the kind of problems that we're seeing. Um, in terms of how we're addressing this from state side, we have this concept of state EV. Um, under the hood, there's, I would say, uh, two major things that we're doing. Uh, the first is we're using a memory mapped IAVL tree. Um, and the second thing is we're having async writes. So, this is what it kind of looks like with the memory mapped IAVL tree. Um, there's an IAVL tree that exists, and this is memory mapped, which means that there's going to be three files on disk. Um, one of these files is for uh, the key value pairs. Another file is for the leaves. Another file is for the nodes in this tree. And the tree itself, if all the state can fit in memory, um, then it will. So if state is, let's say, two gigabytes, um, you have 32 gigabytes of memory. Um, then you'll be able to just fit the entire state in memory and then access becomes really fast because it's already over there. So reading, like you never need to really read from disk. Um, in the case where not everything can fit in memory, then you'll have parts of this that are sitting on disk and then part of it will be cached in memory. Um, so whatever the recent reads are, uh, they'll all be cached in memory. So generally you end up having better performance from that anyway. Um, the question is like, how does this improve state storage and state sync? So in terms of state storage, uh, you can see this graph over here. Uh, we observed a 60% reduction in state storage 
So the amount of data that actually needs to be stored, because there's less metadata that you need to be tracking with the memory mapped approach. So in the case of this memory mapped approach, you don't need to be tracking like every single node in the tree no longer needs to be tracking all this metadata, like version, height, left hash, right hash, uh, the key, like key value as well. Um, for example, the branch nodes, there is no key value that is being stored over there. You don't actually need to like have any data that is allocated for that. Um, in the case of a child node, uh, you don't actually need to have like the left hash and right hash, um, because that's not actually data that needs to persist. Um, then actually we're, we're, we don't need left hat, left hash, right hash to be there on any of these because there's tricks you can use even for the branch nodes to be able to calculate like what the left hash and the right hash are. But at a high level, there's like less metadata that is being stored. Um, less metadata means that there's just less data that you need to persist. Um, so we ran the calculations and it's roughly 60% better over there. Um, because there's less data that is being stored, uh, it's also easier to be um, syncing it. So we observed a 1200% speed up for state sync. Um, this comes because there's less data that needs to be written. And it also comes because you can parallelize writes. Um, in particular, there's just these three files that are there with the memory mapped IBL tree. So because you can parallelize those three writes, it ends up leading to better performance there as well. So 1200% faster is like massive. Um, so that's a huge win for anyone that's starting to like run a new node. Um, and then the third thing is we have async writes that happen to the database. And the way that this works is after a block uh, runs, there's a change set that is generated. Um, this change set does not get uh, committed to the database as a blocking operation to kind of end block execution. Instead, uh, the IABL tree is updated, and that's all you need to do for block execution. And then behind the scenes, in an asynchronous process, you first take whatever the change set is, you apply that to a write-ahead log, which is a pretty classic um, database uh, design technique that's used in several databases like Postgres, for example. Um, and then from there, you have another process that'll take whatever the updates are from the write-ahead log and then write that to disk. So that'll, that's when you actually write that to the database. Um, so that also helps kind of speed up this entire process. And because of this async approach, we observed a 287% uh, decrease in commit time. So regardless of how many transactions are being committed, um, it only takes around 0.4 milliseconds to commit this now. Um, so it ends up being just substantially better over there. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the in-depth, uh, explanation, Rob. Yeah. I, I find it helpful to remind myself blockchains are, are, uh, they're ledgers. So I, I picture an Excel sheet here. And when I think of state, you know, I, I picture like a bunch of addresses that kind of take up like the leftmost column. And I also remember the time when I was first getting an Ethereum wallet, it was 2016 and I had to run a full node and sync the entire state in order to even put ETH into an account. So there's so many more accounts like that have been created from then until now. And I want to clarify one, one point though, because, and then I think this will kind of like take us down a rabbit hole because when, when I picture like a transaction that updates the state, something gets posted, it updates the balance. That is now the new state in the, in the spreadsheet, essentially associated with that account. And then there's like so many new accounts that could add to, to add to the state. Are you saying that every new transaction that gets posted is part of state or is state like a current snapshot of the account balances that doesn't take into account historical balances of each account? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, state is only the current snapshot. So it doesn't have anything, any of the historical balances. Um, and this does mean that like there's two separate things that like you kind of need to account for. One is current state, which is typically what people refer to when they're talking about state bloat because um, that's like what full nodes need to be handling. Then there's also historic state. Um, and this is typically what archive nodes will be helping with to be able to maintain all of the previous transactions that have been coming in and also maintain like previous snapshots. Um, because if you're trying to like do some kind of historical query, you probably want to look at a uh, historical snapshot. Um, so yeah, in Zay's case, we've actually done work around that as well. 
Um, the part that I did not touch on was that when you write to the database, you don't actually need to write the entire IADL tree anymore. You just need to write the key value pairs now. So you just need to write like Robbie has X, um, this mint smart contract has Y, um, which makes it much, I mean, first of all, there's a lot less metadata that's being stored. So it makes it uh, easier to be storing that. Um, and this also makes it much easier to run an archive node because there's less data that need to persist um, for previous heights. Got it. And could you untangle this, like this concept of state and state storage and the concept of data availability? Like mm -hmm. where's the intersection like, or, and like, how are they, could you just kind of like untangle those two things for us? Yes. Okay. So with Celestia and with the Ethereum roadmap around um, dank sharding and proto-dank sharding, uh, this term of data availability has become much more common. Um, and it's honestly a pretty poorly named term. I think the Celestia team has been commenting on that as well, that it would have been better to call it state or data publishing. Um, and the core idea with data availability is you need to... Um, you need to publish the data on the network and then ensure that enough nodes in the network have this data to be able to give it to anyone that needs it. So this is something that only really needs to happen at a current height. It's not really tied to any historic data that is being stored. So people often com uh, confuse data availability with like trying to store historic snapshots somewhere. Um, that is not the case. Data availability is for the current height. So in terms of like how that relates to state bloat, um, it doesn't. It's kind of a separate problem that you're trying to solve entirely. And with state bloat, the issue is just around the current state um, and how do you ensure that like nodes are able to track that. And you may, have, you may have hit on this. I just want to make it really clear. Is state bloat only a problem with new accounts that are being made? Or those... So, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I, I can... Because you also touched touched on like historical state, but it sounds like that isn't really an issue um, as far as state bloat is concerned. Because state is only like the current state, nothing historic. Correct. Yeah. So state refers to only the current active data that's needed to persist the blockchain. So to be able to generate the state hashes, to be able to process any incoming transactions. Um. So state bloat is a problem that'll matter for primarily for the current state of the blockchain. Um. Historic state is the previous data, but the issue is also that if the current state of the blockchain is like 100 gigabytes and you need to have like snapshots for like every single height in the past, if the current uh, state of the blockchain is big, then it leads to more historic data that also needs to be stored. So that's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing you were asking about is whether it's only new accounts that contribute to state bloat. Um, any new transactions that come in, they can lead to an increase in state bloat, even if there's no new accounts being created. So an example over here would be an NFT contract. Um, if you have like more transactions coming in where people are like minting more NFTs and there's like new data that is being written on chain, um, then there's no new accounts being created, but there's still more data that needs to persist on the blockchain. That helps increase state bloat as well. So it's fundamentally not tied to new account creation. It's tied to more data that actually needs to be stored um, on the blockchain. Nice. Okay. Uh, I'm going to play... I got my last my last kind of like tangent here and I want to I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because like especially early on when you know new blockchains were really popular it was like well these are these are kind of like fancy databases like and I I I hear you saying like transactions are, are like written to databases and databases are updated so can you kind of highlight like what is special about about blockchains and about say that that makes this more than a database? Yeah, that's interesting because I was hanging out with my family over the holidays and chatting with a lot of my cousins and trying to explain what a blockchain was. Um, the way that I typically describe it is a database is something that's controlled by a centralized entity. So it might be something like Visa or MasterCard that has basically control over the database. And they're the only ones that can really update balances. Um, whereas a blockchain is a distributed database. So anyone is able to access that and anyone is able to update that. So why does this end up being a good thing? Well, in the case of 
a normal database, like let's say you want to track balances and send money between each other, um, only Visa might have access to, to that database. So if Visa decides that they want to censor you for some reason, like maybe their CEO just really hates you and they're like, oh, Robbie, I really don't want this guy to be able to access us. They can. And there's literally nothing you can do about it. You just completely lose your agency. You lose your ability to have control over the situation. And I think most people, they just would prefer to be able to have their own sovereignty. Um, so with this distributed setting, um, no one is able to kind of censor transactions that are coming in. Um, as long as the majority of the network, or at least there's like even one node that is willing to accept your transaction, um, then you'll be able to submit transactions to the network. Um, so that's like the first thing around censorship. Um, and beyond that, it's also going to be much more transparent. So if you have something like Visa, it's completely in the dark. You have no idea what's actually happening behind the scenes. With something like Ethereum, um, everything is going to be transparent. So you can make sure that all the updates that are happening are being done correctly. Like you have both verifiability and you have the ability to look into the actual current balances and be like, yeah, nothing sketchy is happening over here. So there's a ton of benefits that come um, with being able to use something that is distributed and trustless. On censorship resistance, uh, are say blocks OFAC compliant? Uh, that's going to be up to each validator. Um, from the network perspective, there's nothing that is enforced to try to do anything around uh, deciding what block should be included and excluded. Like from the same blockchain perspective, each transaction is literally just like uh, bits of data, um, and the same blockchain doesn't have any anything built in to like analyze these bits of data and to be able to say whether something is valid or not. I'm not trying to get you in trouble, man. I, with our our three letter uh, organizations or four letter organizational friends, so no, it's, it's a. I think that's a good answer, and it's. I, I think it's the right answer uh, for a properly distributed network. You raise a good point, though, and I think there's there's some concern with regards to the amount of validators on say. Um, so I kind of just, without having too much of a, of a negative thought towards that, and obviously, um, you know, starting off with less validators is kind of the state of things, no pun intended, as you kind of grow and decentralize. But let's talk about your decision to launch as a Cosmos app chain, plans to decentralize your validator set um, overall, kind of what is the state of... of um, staking what is why did you choose to launch as a cosmos app chain and how does that kind of how does being a part of the cosmos kind of hub and ibc contribute to what you guys are building yeah so one thing to clarify over there is that say is not a cosmos app chain um say is also not an app chain um you can think of say as essentially general purpose chain chain so similar to like solana aptos sui um yeah in, in terms of how we got built um, we took initially took the Cosmos SDK and then we forked that. Um, I think there's a delineation between getting started building with the Cosmos SDK and being a Cosmos, like part of the Cosmos ecosystem. I'd say that being part of the Cosmos ecosystem means most of your traffic is coming from other Cosmos chains and they're like interchain transactions, which is definitely not the case for say. Um, so yeah, I mean, we initially got started building with the Cosmos SDK because that was the fastest way to get to market. Um, there's other approaches you can take, like building everything from scratch, um, but you're kind of free creating a wheel with that approach and making use of the Cosmos SDK ends up being, um, I mean, first of all, faster to build with. Uh, the second advantage is you're able to start building with Tendermint consensus. Um, and in our case, we really wanted to offer the best user experience and more specifically, the best trading experience. And if you have Tendermint, which has single slot finality, you're able to offer really fast block times and have them get finalized very quickly as well. And things like reorgs are just not possible um, if you're building a consensus mechanism that uses Tendermint at its base. So that was those were the two primary reasons why you got started building with that approach. Um, at this point, like we forked both Cosmos and Tendermint, um, and we have Twin Turbo consensus, which helps us get this 390 millisecond time to finality. Um, and I can go over like what changes we made along like block propagation and uh, block processing as well if helpful. Um, the, the biggest downside of using something that is like based on Tendermint, um, is that you're not able to have a massive validator set. Um, and what I mean by this is with Tendermint, you have N squared communication overhead. So every single validator needs to talk to every other validator. 
um, to be able to finalize a block and to be able to move on to processing and voting on the next block. Um, so that's why you don't really see any Cosmos chains that have more than like 200 validators. Um, the nice thing about this is you're able to get much better UX. Uh, the downside is that you're kind of capped at this 200 validator number. Um, the question is then like how much, if, if your network is already sufficiently decentralized, how much does having more validators than network actually matter? Um, I would make the argument that there's the writing on the wall right now, that having a large validator set is unnecessary. It leads to, so first of all, it makes it much more expensive to run the network. If you have like 10,000 different validators or a hundred thousand million different validators, you need to make sure all of them are making enough money to justify running those validators. So it leads to much more, um, much more overhead to just even run the chain. Um, and it's a lot of kind of wasted computation, um, that's happening over there. Like the, if the core thing that you want is to have sufficient decentralization and then also just have verifiability, um, I think we're moving as an entire industry, there's writing on the wall that are moving towards the direction of having, um, verifiability happening through zero knowledge, like, like clients versus having everyone in the entire world running, um, a validator node. So for anyone that might be unfamiliar with this idea, um, the way that it'll work, uh, would say in the future is that there will be like, everyone will be able to run a light client. This might be something that is just running as part of your like MetaMask is running in the background. Um, and what it will be doing is it'll be consuming zero knowledge proofs of state transitions that have happened on the blockchain. And then you'll be able to verify that the state hash is correct. And you'll be able to verify that the blockchain that you're um, using is like, has not been like tampered with in any way. Um, so you'll be able to verify that the blockchain is valid um, without needing to actually run every single transaction and redo all that computation. Um, so, I mean, that, that's how say will be kind of, uh, helping with verifiability in the future. Yep. Yep. Ron and I've, have all learned about that with a recent podcast with avail with regards to data availability sampling. Um, interesting to see how that kind of applies as well. Um, an, an interesting answer with regards to the smaller validator set kind of getting out of the weeds here. Uh, let's talk about the say ecosystem. So. Um, what are the exciting projects in the SEI ecosystem from a neutral perspective, um, DeFi, NFTs? What are some upcoming projects that our community can get active in the communities and get some alpha for, be early to some upcoming projects? Obviously, it's still very early and entirely to the ecosystem. So let's talk about uh, the ecosystem approach, initiatives, liquidity, incentives. Um, but let's start with some exciting and upcoming projects uh, that you know of that are coming out that are our community can uh, kind of take advantage of. Yeah. So the past six weeks have been insane. Um, after the Save V2 narrative came out, I would say that there's three types of projects that have really started to take off on Save. Um, initially, we started seeing a ton of inscriptions activity. And inscriptions are something that, I mean, six months ago, I never would have guessed that they would be one of the things that lead to a lot of activity on Save. Um, but I mean, here we are right now where uh, mid-December inscriptions just started going on to every single chain and that led to a bunch of activity. I frankly don't really think that's going to be, um, the killer use case for say, um, I feel like inscriptions, they don't really make much sense to be some, some parts of it I do think make sense where you have like data that is being persisted on chain. Um, but it, the idea of like having off chain, uh, indexers that are running in like off chain, like everything is kind of happening off chain. That seems very unnecessary if you already have like a Turing complete virtual machine. Like just write smart contracts instead to help with a bunch of this stuff. Um, so we started seeing inscriptions. I don't think that's going to be that long lived. Um, after inscriptions, we started seeing a lot more NFT activity and a lot more tokens being launched in the ecosystem that people are trading. Um, I, I think that the NFT activity in particular has been very, very um both unexpected and also just extremely community driven. Like there's a lot of really exciting NFT collections that are just being launched every single week right now. I think in the past week, we've had two pretty major collections and say it's quickly becoming the home for new NFT launches. Um, I, I don't have an answer to why that happened. I think it just ended up being people became excited about some of the collections on say. Um, there was one co collection called uh, The Colony, which was a free mint. Um, and I think there's just led to a really exciting narrative around that that was kind of similar to um, CryptoPunks from back in the day. And that led the way. And now there's like several different collections that are starting to become a lot more exciting on safe. 
So uh, it kind of seems like right now the ecosystem is still quite early. Um, NFTs are one of those things that are going to probably be a big source of activity on, say, in the next six months. Um, and I think if you look at how ecosystems typically get built, there ends up being like NFT activity and then primitives that are built early on. Um, in the next three months, I think there will be a lot more of these core primitives that are launched. So for example, like a uh, liquid staking token, um, another example would be a lending protocol. Uh, and then after this, these primitives are built, that's when you start seeing more killer applications that get launched. Um, I don't have an answer for you in terms of like what that killer application on say is going to be. Um, but once you have like a community that is actively doing stuff on chain and you have these photos built out, um, I think that becomes much easier to be supporting. From the foundation or labs perspective, is there, um, once this ecosystem gets, you know, you know, starts to grow more and, um, you know, kind of flourish, is there plans to incentivize with uh say tokens or incentivize in different ways also are there are there incentives for developers to come build on say mm -hmm. um in terms of what has been publicly announced so far uh there currently is no no types of incentives that have been announced um with that being said i think that things tend to be quite fluid in crypto um, so there's a very real chance that say foundation would consider that in the future. I definitely don't think that's off the table. Um, in terms of developer incentives, right now there's like no official incentives around that either. Uh, most of the developers and activity that we're seeing right now is candidly just completely organic. Like the entire say in initiative, like that was not like say lab, say foundation, where it's not involved with that at all. That was completely community driven. Um, a lot of the new projects that we're seeing, like these NFT collections, a lot of the coins are being launched, completely community-driven as well. Um, so interestingly, I think that we're starting to see very real activity happening, even without involvement from the foundation, which I think is the kind of best spot that you can get to. Um, so yeah, in the future, there probably will be something that, say, foundation does. Um, I think it just ends up being pretty common to see that playing out. But at the moment, there's no like uh, incentive programs in place. You can You can go ahead and announce it now if you like. No, I mean, I first of all, I'm only associated with Say Labs, and How are we uh, I don't think Say Foundation is has any actual plans either. What are the best options to uh, bridge to Say, and um, how do you how do you get uh, Say tokens to pay for gas? Mm -hmm. So, if you want to bridge from other ecosystems onto Say, uh, there's three different ways you can do that. Um, the first is Wormhole, second is Axelar, um, and third is IBC. So you can make use of all of these bridges. Um, moving forward, once there's EVM compatibility, there will be other bridges that are supported as well. Um, so that should make the experience even clearer. Um, if you want to get say right now, I think the most common approach that I've heard of is people buying on centralized exchanges uh, and then just withdrawing from the centralized exchange onto a say wallet. Uh, in terms of liquidity in the ecosystem, I would say that there's room for improvement on liquidity. So if you're trying to like bring over uh, from another ecosystem and then swap that per se, there might be higher, um, uh, what's the term for it? Slippage. Yeah, there might be higher slippage than if you just trade on a centralized exchange and uh, withdraw it. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and then uh, for, for for those who haven't um, access say yet is what are the supporting wallets? Yeah, so the main wallets in the ecosystem are Compass and Fin um, at the moment. But after the EVM launch happens, um, MetaMask and every other Ethereum wallet will also be usable. Um, one of the things that's really nice about Save 2 is the interface for people to be interacting um, with Say remains. It is the exact same as like the EVM interface. So all existing EVM tooling will be seamlessly reusable. So there's going to be MetaMask and there's also a MetaMask snap that is going to be ready by mainnet time as well. Um, so you can just use MetaMask to do everything in the SAE ecosystem moving forward. Or Rabi, I like Rabi more. Um, cool. Um, and then what kind of um, plans do you guys have for uh, interoperability or um, collaboration with uh, other uh, ecosystems or dApps? Are you planning to try to bring on some of the uh, Ethereum dApps or uh, other e ecosystem dApps to say? 
or you think about how to do this with grants, liquidity, marketing, what are your plans to grow the ecosystem and to establish more liquidity and more uh, dApps? Yeah. So interestingly, there's already some Ethereum applications that are considering coming over. Um, so either from like Ethereum L1. In terms of how I see the ecosystem progressing, um, I think there will initially be people that are coming over from existing ecosystems and then deploying some type of multi-chain application. Um, in general, I don't think multi-chain applications end up being the ones that lead to the most, uh, both success for that project and also success for the ecosystem. So I think it's going to be kind of um, multi-step approach where like initially projects come over from Ethereum and some other Altel ones like Avalanche, for example. We've had a few projects uh, that are like leaving the Avalanche ecosystem and coming on to say. Um, step two is once these projects start finding success, it becomes easier and easier for developers to justify going all in on say. Um, once that happens, I think you'll see more applications that are exploring this new design space that say offers. Um, the new design space being high performance EVM applications. Um, and I think those types of applications will be the ones that have uh, both genuine product market fit on say, and also the ones that become the killer applications that help kind of uh, take say to the next level. It's a great, like, great case study. Like inscriptions are like tremendous to demonstrate scale, which I think is is a unique value of say. Whereas like you could you know point to a lot of these other chains that aren't able to handle uh, the stress test that they got from inscriptions. Uh, not to say that it's the you know killer app on say, but it does demonstrate the opportunity of another killer app to come along and, and utilize the scale. Exactly. Like with inscriptions, we, I mean, say didn't really have any issues at the core chain level. Um, I think we're processing more than like 200 transactions per second at the time. And with Savy 2 we ran load tests um, and with optimistic parallelization and all of like the state changes that we've made, uh, we're able to get over 5,000 TPS. So Savy 2 is actually going to end up being like 100x improvement over what you're seeing already with the Ethereum virtual machine. Love it. Well, Jay, as we kind of wrap up, um, any kind of closing thoughts for our community and um, for the site community as well who are uh, patiently watching? Yeah, the closing thoughts on my side are that um, Save 2 is one of the biggest initiatives that Say Labs is working on right now. Um, in terms of what it's going to take and next steps around that, uh, the first thing that we're aiming for is to have an internal devnet. Um, we ended up getting that ready ahead of time. Um, and we kind of posted, uh, videos for like what that end-to-end experience looks like from a month ago. Uh, so we actually had like a save V2 war happening, uh, last month and the entire team got together. We got the internal dev devnet built. Um, then we also had, uh, the initial team, um, that deployed to it. So that was step one. Um, step two is audits. So Savy2, um, we started getting it audited by both Zelic and Ottersec. Um, so super high quality firms that we're working with. Um, step three will be a public testnet. That will be happening sometime in Q1 of 2024. Um, and then there'll be the public mainnet, which um, assuming that governance approves that should be sometime um, in H1 of this year. So yeah, ton of stuff to look forward to over there. And uh, things are moving quite quickly. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you for uh, for coming on and congrats again on the great success and let's keep building, man. All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast and a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.